This is Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. The debate has been going on for decades. What are the roles of nature versus nurture? Or do your genes or your environment determine your illness? This is especially true for diseases that we call neuropsychiatric. Here with more on all of this is Dr. Stephen Glatt. He's Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Glad. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you about all of this stuff because it's, it's very exciting, and I know there have been a lot of new breakthroughs in this field of neuropsychiatric disorders. Help us understand what's going on right now. Things are moving so fast. It's unbelievable. I've been in the field for 15 years, and I'm really just seeing exponential growth. And the most exciting thing is that we've known for decades that these disorders run in families and that that's because of shared genes between family members. Now, within the last 10 years, we've really got a handle on which specific sequences in the human genome actually allow for that passage from parents to their children of the risk for mental disorders. More dis more for some disorders than others, like schizophrenia, very heavily studied. Other disorders are less studied. So give me some examples of ones that we know right now are really genetically predestined. Uh, in other words, people are totally, it's, it's totally a function of their genes. So there's nothing in the realm of psychiatry like that. There are certain, there are many, many what we call Mendelian disorders or disorders that are caused by a single gene that you've inherited. Early onset breast cancer, for example, early right. onset Alzheimer's disease. Those are caused by one gene and when you have it, you will get sick. For psychiatric disorders, it's more complicated. It's more like you have to inherit lots and lots of genes that each have an incremental effect on your overall susceptibility. But the genes just aren't enough either. You also need some environmental factors in combination with those genes to determine your overall risk level. So it really isn't a single story. I mean, it's not like you have the gene and you get it. That's it's right. It's definitely not a one-to-one -one ratio at all. That's correct. And it's not one single gene. No. It's in many cases we think probably thousands of mutations and in fact you and I are carrying a lot of those mutations but we probably don't have enough plus the environmental factors that have caused us to have a mental illness. So this whole notion of when they talk about predisposition, the mm -hmm. genes predispose you, that's like saying the ground is laid mm -hmm. but something has to, you know, the, there has to be rain on mm -hmm. the soil for the seeds to, 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 to sprout. That's right. Yeah, so the genes, you've obviously had them in utero, you've carried them your whole life and they've put in place perhaps some susceptibility, wiring the brain in a certain way. But those environmental factors have to impinge upon that genome. And there's a mechanism, there's a name for that mechanism by which the environment influences the expression of the genome called epigenetics. So that's really, when we say epigenetics, we're talking about how the environment actually does interact with the genes. That's right. When we talk about genetic studies or genetic disorders, we're talking about changes in the A's, C's, T's, and G's, the chemical sequence of the genome that mediates disease or susceptibility. Epigenetics is different. Epigenetic modifications are when the environment causes a chemical change to what's attached to the genome. So the structure, the letter sequence doesn't change, but the accessibility of your genome to make those proteins changes because of the epigenetic well, modifications. That's very interesting because I never really understood exactly how the environment actually does affect you know, kind of the chemical sequences or what actually is taking place. In, in, in extreme circumstances, for example, nuclear radiation or extreme chemical exposure, 
those environmental factors can change the sequence of your genome. They can mutate your genome, but mostly the environment is, has more subtle effects. These epigenetic effects just change the chemicals that are attached to your normal DNA sequence. This is very exciting. I have so many questions for you, but I guess first give us an overview of what are the the actual dis disorders or disease types that we're talking about when we say, when we're talking about basically neuropsychiatric diseases. What's so the spectrum? The ones that I study the most are late adolescent to early adulthood onset disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, plus early childhood onset disorders like autism spectrum disorders and ADHD. Uh, but we're also talking about things like depression, which is not a genetic disorder, but there's a genetic susceptibility. And depression also runs in families in part because of what you inherit from your parents, but also because of what you're exposed to in your environment. Things like post-traumatic stress disorder also fall under this. Even though that really is very much environmentally determined. And in fact, you cannot you have, to have, have a trauma. That's correct. <laughs> you, you have to have an environmental exposure in PTSD, but there's also a genetic susceptibility of who, for example, it, that is exposed to that environmental trauma will develop PTSD versus be resilient to it. For example, we study U.S. Marines who've been deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, and there are differences among a particular cohort they all are exposed to the same horrific traumas of war. Some guys come home and they're fine, and some guys come home and they have PTSD. And genes play some role in that. See, it's also interesting when you look at families within a certain, let's say if it's a dysfunctional family situation with potentially abuse or something, some children will come out without major uh, neuropsychiatric issues and others will have you know, will be affected by that environment very adversely. So there really are basically constitutional differences or genetic differences. That's right. And this is one of the most exciting concepts now is resilience. We're studying these disorders that I mentioned, and we're starting to explain what lays out your susceptibility, the genes, the specific environments. But then there are these people who have the genetic risk, and they also have the environmental risk, they but they else. don't show the disorder. And what we think they probably have are genes that mediate resilience, hardiness, or resistance to the burden that they're carrying. So that's something new that we're doing at Upstate that almost no one else in the world is doing. It seems to me that really lies, that that's a key that could unlock a tremendous amount of, of help well, for people if there was a way to really program that or encourage that. Right. Or Can we foster it? resilience? And the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, Tom Insel, commented on this a couple years ago to say that there's probably more to be learned about these disorders by studying people who are resilient in face of the the huge risk that they carry rather than people who actually have the disorder. We kind of buy into that. Is there also a possibility, and this is something that I've been reading about or hearing about lately when, it talk, when we talk about epigenetics, is there a possibility of changes that take place in a person being then transmitted then to the next generation. So you have this idea that person's born with a certain gene uh, array, mm -hmm. the environment affects them in a certain way and they show up with severe depressive disorder, let's say. Is it more likely than not then that they can pass that on the changes that have occurred in them well, we passed don't, on? We don't know yet if it's more likely or not, but we do know that it occurs. We used to believe that your DNA sequence gets passed on to your children, but those epigenetic modifications, those chemical modifications get wiped clean and the child starts fresh. That was dogma for many years, but then the science caught up and showed that actually there is transgenerational transmission of epigenetic modifications. So it opened up a whole new world on understanding that what people inherit is 
is not just the DNA sequence. It's also some of those chemical modifications. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with neuropsychologist Dr. Stephen Glatt, and we're talking about the state of our knowledge about neuropsychiatric diseases. So I guess what's what's interesting to me here is this whole notion of, of uh, evolution, the whole notion of Lamarck and and versus um, Darwin, and the whole idea that Lamarck way back used to say that if a giraffe stretched its neck to reach the leaves on the top of the tree, then his neck would stretch and the next generation of, of um, giraffes would have long necks, which obviously was that the environment was creating change, which is completely the antithesis of what Darwin said, which is these random mutations then uh, find a more favorable environment and those are the ones that exist. Am I correct in stating that? Yeah, so you're correct in stating both of their positions. Modern-day understanding or conceptualization of epigenetics does not entirely vindicate Lamarck. Nobody's saying Lamarck was exactly right on this point, but it is a form of molecular inheritance that Darwin did not predict. And, in fact, Lamarck was probably closer to describing. So there is some kind of a, a, I don't want to say a, balance between the two or a melding of the two or yeah our, we're not really sure that's well our modern conceptualization of what's heritable blends aspects of what Lamarck could not put in molecular terms didn't have the technology to understand but the fact that you could pass on things that you've acquired from the environment is is in part true but Darwin of course his his uh, principles also hold true so what are the current paths in terms of studying this I mean where are we headed? You mentioned resilience. Obviously, that's something that seems to me that has tremendous application, potential clinical mm-hmm. application. If they could identify what factors contribute to resilience and actually either program them mm-hmm. or uh, encourage them in various ways, promote them, yeah. whatever words you want to use. Is that you say you're doing that kind of work. Tell us about that briefly. Well, it's it's such an exciting time, and I'm actually really jealous of my students because they're just starting out, and they have the luxury of just working on these problems all day and not the administrative things that we, uh, we work on. At the heart. <laughs> but it's really an exciting time because now we've generated more data than we almost know what to do with. It used to be a problem of extensive cost and time to generate data, and it was so prized that everybody held it close to the vest or in their silo. And now we're in an era where data is just exploding. You hear about big data, and the data sets are really too large for any one group to handle. So there's a new mentality of data sharing that when I was a student 15 years ago, 20 years ago, never could have imagined. Now everyone shares their data, and when you have more data, you can make more precise conclusions. So my students are benefiting from this. We're getting data from all over the world to put together to more accurately define these problems. So give me a sample of what the data is. Give me an example. We we primarily focus on these DNA sequence variations that are passed from family members down to their children. With and neuropsychiatric with disorders. With neuropsychiatric disorders. But we're also we also need to get a handle on what's the normal biology, what's the normal brain and the normal genome look like. So we study typically developing families, but we also study families through which mental illness is passed. How do you get the sample? I mean, you're basically, are you taking DNA samples from all of these people? We are. Typically, we get a blood sample or a saliva sample. We do this right here at Upstate. Uh, In my building, we're doing a study of families right now where we're trying to get 700 families enrolled with at least one child between the age of 6 and 12 and as many children as possible. And And this is both normal and people who have some mental That's right. Typically developing or kids with any mental health concern or diagnosis. Okay, and then what do you do? You basically... So we'll take a DNA sample, we'll genotype 
millions of markers across an, a person's genome and find out that letter sequence. And then we'll find in large samples which sequences of letters co-occur or correlate with mental illness. So is that being done, I mean, basically the fact that we can we've been able to analyze the human genome really has been the key that's unlocked all of this data. That's right. We're in what's called the post-genomic era now because we have this human genome map. Now we have to make sense of it. Now we have to use that knowledge to map out disease risk. And we're actually being quite successful. Some of the large consortia where groups from all over the world are participating, hundreds of investigators, they made the right move and we're part of these consortia. Put the data together to get the best sense. And now we're starting to explain and come up with formula to say, Yes, we can account for 40% of why a person gets sick because of their DNA, but that still leaves a big portion unexplained, and that may be more complex genetic patterns, but it may also be epigenetic and environmental patterns. That's assuming, the next frontier. Yes, but assuming that you can actually identify what patterns might be um, kind of repeating mm -hmm. in certain disease entities, is the, is the notion then at any point that you could actually intervene either in utero or at any point to alter these gene sequences? And is that potentially a Pandora's box? That's right. That's the most challenging ethical question that we struggle with. And as a community, we do struggle with this. Even though we can't do that now, we struggle with issues of should you once we could. And how would you do that? Now, when I, my research is oriented toward identifying a person's risk and then intervening early. But I'm not talking about genome engineering or anything like that because these are not single gene disorders. So there's not one mutation you could fix. You'd have to fix literally thousands. And in fixing some, you'd be breaking some other problems. So the idea is early identification and then intervention with more typical or classical or conventional methodologies. Exactly. Very exactly. good. Well, you mentioned that you've got a study going. How can people get involved, or do you, are you looking for people to get involved? We are actively enrolling for the next year and a half in this study, and it's been going on for a year and a half, and people are really enjoying being in the study. They can come into the lab for three hours with their family, earn $50 per family member to be in the lab to play computer games. They can just look us up on the website that'll be posted, the website address that'll be posted. We'll link, we'll link, we'll put a link to your website or the website for the study on our website, which is healthlinkonair.org, and that's all one word, healthlinkonair. And um, in the very few seconds, the future is? The future is not nature or nurture, it's nature and nurture together, and what part nature, what part nurture, and how they interact to predict who's at risk and then to intervene early. And we think that's likely and a good possibility going forward in your crystal ball. In my lifetime, years. we will see this, yeah. Personalized medicine will become real. Very exciting. Thank you so much for coming in. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. My guest has been Dr. Stephen Gladys, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.